This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 7, a historical overview of the area on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. Last week, I covered the Fertile Crescent as well as the climate of that time and place. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm providing a quick overview of the history of the lands associated with the Old Testament. Egypt, Persia, Greece, Assyria, Parthia, and Sumer. This is in preparation for the deeper dives that will occur later. So let's get started. Before conducting a comprehensive review of the history of the region and era of the Old Testament, I'm going to walk through a high level, essentially a survey of the time, from the beginning of recorded history through, in most cases, the year 1 BC. The many episodes that follow will be the deep dives. There are many dates in here, but I don't expect anyone to remember any of this, and there won't be a quiz. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully enjoy. Unless, of course, you are driving, then just enjoy it, but keep your eyes on the road. The budding civilization in the Middle East in the 4th through 2nd millennium BC was largely due to the existence of convenient land bridges passable all year long, almost completely independent of the weather. North of this area, let's say from about the Caspian Sea in higher latitudes, was virtually impassable in winter owing to the harshness of the climate. To the east, Central Asia was frequently too dry in the summer to traverse, and land travel between Asia and Africa was limited to small strips of land in Suez. Overall, large-scale desert travel was limited to specific routes in present-day Iran and in North Africa. The availability of water led to the first agricultural revolution and immediately gave the people of this region food. The somewhat stable availability of nourishment gave rise to other capital items, which led to trade. But that also had a great influence on the people of that era. First, I'll cover the Sumerians. The Mesopotamian civilization of Sumer emerged in what is called the Ubaid period, which was between about 6500 and 4000 BC, and continued through the Uruk period, between about 4000 and 3100 BC. Sumer is considered to be the oldest known culture of the region. Kish was a city in Sumer, and theorized to be one and the same as the biblical city of Cush. Uridu is the oldest known Sumerian location, settled during the proto-civilized Ubaid period. It's the seaport I've mentioned a few times, despite currently being some distance from the present location of the Persian Gulf. It was situated several miles southwest of the later site of Ur. Uridu was the southernmost of an assemblage of early cities in southern Mesopotamia, with the earliest of these settlements dating to about 5000 BC. By the 4th millennium BC in Nippur, there were clay tablets with inscriptions, so written language dates to at least this far back. By 4000 BC, an ancient Elamite city, called Sumer, in present-day Iran emerged. While the Elamites originally had their own written language, from an early age they modified the Sumerian cuneiform script to their own language. It is believed that the earliest cuneiform text from the Elamites dates to about 3500 BC. The Sumerians are known for the development of irrigation as well as several types of pottery. Sumerian cities during the period are believed to have been theocratic, most likely headed by a priest king, with the assistance of a council of elders, probably including both men and women. A king list, which will be covered in more depth later, listed the rulers of the Sumerians. Their cities were generally without walls, suggesting that they did not face threats from their neighbors. During the Uruk period, the city of Uruk is thought to have been the largest in the world, with over 50,000 inhabitants. Following the Sumerians were the Akkadians. 
The Akkadian Empire arose in the 24th century BC. It is often identified as the first empire in history. Around 2400 BC, a Semitic leader, Sargon I, also called Sargon the Great, conquered all the land of Babylonia and founded the first dynasty of Akkad, called the Akkadian Empire, which held power for about 150 years. Sargon and his successors were the first known rulers in southwestern Asia to gain control of the Fertile Crescent and adjacent territories. They began trade with what is modern-day Turkey and Iran, and as far as India and Egypt. To us today, that may not seem like a large accomplishment, but at the time, it was revolutionary. If you will recall, the Italian Marco Polo allegedly opened up Asia to Europe. Well, these people went nearly as far and beat him by about 3,000 years. To put that in perspective, that would be like comparing you or me to King Solomon. After the fall of the Akkadians, there was a Sumerian revival under the third dynasty of Ur, once again in present-day Iraq, followed by another inflow of Semites, referring to their common language. These Semites founded the first dynasty of Babylon in the 19th century BC, whose most important king was Hammurabi. In the 17th century BC, new ethnic groups migrated to both Babylonia and the coastal area of present-day Syria and Israel. They were the Kassites from the Zargos Mountains of northern Iraq and Iran, the Hurrians from Armenia, and others from Central Asia. This period is generally regarded as marking the end of the formative phase of the Mesopotamian civilizations. I'll return to this region in a bit, but before getting too far along in time, I'm going to swing south and west to Egypt. Few written records or artifacts have been found from what is called the pre-dynastic period of Egypt, which encompassed at least 2,000 years of the slow development of the Egyptian civilization. Neolithic communities in northeastern Africa exchanged hunting for agriculture and made initial advances in technology and politics that set the stage for later development. Around the 35th century BC, two separate kingdoms were established. To the north was the Red Land. It was based to the Nile River Delta and extended along the Nile perhaps to Afid, roughly 120 miles or 200 kilometers inland from the Mediterranean. To the south was the White Land, stretching from Afid to Gebel es Silsila. Around 3200 BC, a king from the south made the first attempts, albeit unsuccessful, to conquer the northern kingdom. About a century later, King Menes would conquer the north and unify the country, becoming the first king of the first dynasty. King Menes founded the capital of ancient Egypt at an area that would later become Memphis, near the beginning of the Nile River Delta. This era, now known as the Archaic Period, saw the first development of Egyptian society, including the central ideology of kingship. To the ancient Egyptians, the king was a godlike being. The earliest known hieroglyphic writing dates to this period. In the Archaic period, most Egyptians were farmers living in small villages, growing mostly wheat and barley. Agriculture formed the economic base of the Egyptian state. The seasonal flooding of the Nile provided the necessary irrigation and renourishment for the fertile land. Around 2700 BC, the country was unified under a powerful monarchy known as the Old Kingdom. It was at this time that the pyramids were built. Around 2200 BC, there was a period of disunity followed by reunification under the 12th dynasty about 200 years later. Between 2000 and 1800 BC, Egyptian control was established over portions of the present-day Sudan, Libya, Israel, and southern Syria. But then, around 1800 BC, that Egyptian empire fell apart. And about 100 years later, Egypt was overwhelmed by Asian invaders known as the Hyksos, who ruled the country for a century and a half. 
Towards the end of the 16th century BC, the Hyksos were expelled and the 18th dynasty arose, founding what is called the New Kingdom. The New Kingdom rulers expanded the territory back into the land occupied by present-day Syria and Israel. In doing so, they came into conflict, first with the Hurrian state of Mentani, located in present-day Turkey and Syria. They later butted up against the Anatolian Hittites in present-day Turkey. Also, Egypt gained control over Nubia. Nubia was located in the area that is present-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan. The country went on to establish a large empire, stretching from Nubia to the Euphrates River in Mesopotamia. The 19th and 20th dynasties, known as the Ramsesside period, so named because the line of kings were related to Ramses, restored the empire from its weakened state and began a great amount of construction, including many temples and cities. Some believe that the Exodus, led by Moses, possibly occurred during the reign of Ramses II in about the 14th century BC. Ramses III, who reigned from 1187 to 1156 BC, is thought to have been the last great king of Egypt. Owing to the elaborateness of his tomb, it is believed that Egypt was very prosperous during his reign. The kings who followed Ramses III were less successful. During this time, Egypt lost its territories in present-day Israel and Syria and endured foreign invasions, all while its wealth was being depleted. During the next 400 years, there were many significant changes in Egyptian politics, society, and culture. The centralized government lost power to local officials, while immigrants from Libya and Nubia seized power for themselves. In the 8th century BC, Egypt was reunified again, but this too was not to last. Beginning in 671 BC, Memphis and the Delta region were attacked repeatedly by the Assyrians, who expelled the Nubians and empowered the client kings of the 26th dynasty. This worked for a bit, as these kings, with the help of Greek mercenaries, were able to keep other invaders at bay. But there was a rising power to the east, the Persians. In 525 BC, the Persians defeated the Egyptians, and with that, Egypt became part of the Persian Empire. The Persians ruled the country in pretty much the same manner as the native Egyptian kings. They allowed Egypt to continue with its religious cults and restored its temples. This was, at least, until Xerxes, who ruled Persia between 486 and 465 BC. His tyranny generated increased rebellions with one of these proving triumphant in 404 BC. This began one last period of Egyptian independence with native rulers. In the 4th century BC, the Persians attacked again, emerging victorious in 343. I'll get back to the Persians in just a bit. Eleven years later, Alexander of Macedonia defeated the Persian Empire and Egypt was handed from the Persians to the Greeks without the war entering Egypt. I'll stop the history of Egypt there, because from then until about 1 BC, its history essentially aligns with that of the Greeks, the Ptolemies, and then the Romans. If you don't know who the Ptolemies were, don't worry, like the Romans, they will be covered later. On the north side of the Mediterranean is Greece. The time period known as Ancient Greece refers to the era three centuries before the Classical Age, between about 800 and 500 BC. Ancient Greece was an age of advances in art, poetry, and technology, but most of all, it was an era in which the city-state was invented. The city-state, also known as the polis, became the defining feature of Greek political life for hundreds of years. In the 8th century BC, Greece began to emerge following the fall of the Mycenaean civilization, essentially prehistory Greece. The Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet, 
but modified it to create the Greek alphabet. In about the 9th century BC, written records began to appear. Greece was organized into many self-governing communities, largely dictated by Greek geography. Overall, in that area, every island and valley is cut off from others by the sea or by mountains or by both. A growing population and a shortage of land led to class conflict between the poor and rich in many city-states. Sparta, in the 8th century BC, defeated the Messenians. This resulted in the enslavement of the Messenians, the first act of its kind in ancient Greece. This practice led to a social revolution, where the enslaved population farmed and labored for Sparta. That allowed every Spartan male citizen to become a soldier, leaving the Spartan state permanently militarized. At the same time, the population of the area grew tremendously, putting pressure on each city. This rise in population led to immigration, and that's immigration with an E, of people from Greece to lands far afield. Between 750 and 600 BC, Greek colonies were established from Sicily to Asia Minor, and from North Africa to the coast of the Black Sea. In total, there were more than 1,500 independent city-states, although this phrase may imply that they were larger than they actually were. In these, since they were independent, the people who lived there were not ruled by or bound to their home city-states. The new establishments were self-governing and self-sufficient, but they maintained cultural and linguistic ties with their home cities. The immigration essentially ended in the 6th century BC. At this time, several cities stood out in Greece, namely Athens, Sparta, Corinth, and Thebes. These cities had brought the surrounding rural areas and smaller towns under their control. At the same time, Athens and Corinth had become major maritime and mercantile powers. In the second half of the 6th century BC, Athens fell under the rule of several tyrants. Then, in 510 BC, the Spartans helped the Athenians overthrow the tyranny. But after that, the Spartans and Athenians promptly turned on each other, and the Spartans installed a leader loyal to Sparta in Athens. Of course, the Athenians did not wish to be ruled by a puppet and responded by becoming a democracy where the power was shared by all of the citizens. This democracy led to what is considered the Golden Age for Athens. It is also considered the first democracy in world history. Despite the fighting, Athens and Sparta would soon have to become allies to face the largest external threat Greece would see until the Romans, a couple of hundred years later. In 492 BC, the Persian Empire invaded Greece. The Greeks won a decisive victory at Marathon two years later, and the Persians retreated. But not for long. Ten years later, the Persians were back, only to be defeated again. These wars would last another 40 years, finally resulting in a Greek victory. After this, there was disunity, again, between the Greek city-states. The Athenians were seen by the Spartans as growing their maritime empire, leading to Sparta and her allies attacking Athens in the Peloponnesian Wars, which began in 431 BC and lasted 27 years. At the time, Athens was protected by an impressive wall system, so Sparta's army was not very effective. But Sparta was, and is, landlocked. So what good was Athens' navy? The war, quite understandably, was pretty much a stalemate. But Athens suffered through a typhoid epidemic that killed about 30% of the city. The epidemic contributed to Sparta achieving victory in 405 BC, but this was also after it was able to cut off Athens' grain supply. The next year, the Athenians sought peace, but not without giving up a few things. In the agreement they struck, 
Athens lost her city walls, her naval fleet, and all of her overseas possessions. But that too was not to last, as the Athenians, Thebans, and other Greeks, as well as Persia, were eyeing Sparta. I'm going to end the Greek history here, around 400 BC, because this corresponds with the writing of Nehemiah, the last book of the Proto-Canonical Old Testament. By the way, Proto-Canonical means the widely accepted books. What happened in Greece after 400 BC dramatically impacted the New Testament, and I will cover it in due time. Now to back up a bit and move towards present-day Iraq. In the late 2nd millennium BC, in Mesopotamia, the prevailing powers were the Kassite Babylonians and the Assyrians. After the fall of Mitanni, around 1350 BC, the Hittites and Babylonians both directed their hostility towards Assyria. Kassite Babylonia was conquered by Assyria around 1230 BC. Then the Hittite Empire was conquered by the Assyrians 30 years later. I'll explore all of these, the Hittites, Babylonians, and Assyrians, in greater detail later. But there is one historical footnote that I just can't sit on. The Hittites and the Israelites were never enemies in the Hebrew text. In the Book of Kings, King Solomon apparently ran a successful arms trading business, importing horses and chariots from Egypt and reselling them to the Hittites. The Hittites were also considered to be allied with Abraham in the Book of Genesis. The 13th century BC saw the immigration of new peoples into the Fertile Crescent and surrounding area. This was driven by the collapse of the Hittite Empire and the destruction of many coastal cities of Greece, Cyprus, and Syria. Some believe that the Trojan War may have also contributed to this immigration. Among the immigrants were the Philistines, who settled in what is present-day Syria, Israel, and Jordan. About the same time, in the same area, The Hebrews founded a tribal confederation that was changed into a monarchy by Saul and David around 1000 BC. To the east, the Medes, among others, were streaming into Iran from the area that is present-day Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and a bit of Russia. From what is present-day Syria came the Semitic Aramenes. These two peoples, the Aramenes and Medes, were to change the course of the ancient Middle East. The Assyrians must have been out to lunch when this happened, as their state suffered a decline in the 11th century BC, when the Aramanes occupied most of its land. This would last about a hundred years, when the Assyrians began to recover, and by the 9th century BC, the Assyrians had conquered much of western Media and southern Armenia, as well as Babylonia and Syria. In the centuries that followed, until about 640 BC, the Assyrian Empire was greatly expanded, It was also highly organized administratively. Its language became Aramaic due to the influence of the Aramaeans. But Assyria also was not to last. After about a decade of civil war, combined with attacks from too many outsiders to list, the Assyrian Empire collapsed in about 600 BC. For less than a century, the Chaldean dynasty in Babylonia carried on the Assyrian traditions of administration and commerce. During that time, their king, Nebuchadnezzar II, led the Neo-Babylonian Empire to become the most powerful political entity of its time. Its territory swept from the Taurus Mountains in present-day Turkey to eastern Arabia and well into southern Iran. While the Chaldean Empire was not long for this world, it is well remembered. King Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Why was this short-lived empire so well remembered in the Bible? Well, it did destroy the temple in Jerusalem, throw a few guys in a furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar suffered through a bout of insanity. 
and, outside the Bible, it is remembered for its elaborate hanging gardens, considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. What is amazing to me is that this kingdom was around for about a hundred years, a mere blip compared to the others of the Old Testament time period, but its influence on the writers of that portion of the Bible far outweigh its historical length. Obviously, this will get a great deal of attention in future podcasts. In the meantime, the Canaanite Phoenicians on the Syrian coast re-established their control after the Philistine and Aramean invasions. In the 10th and 9th centuries BC, they fanned out across the Mediterranean, going as far as North Africa and Spain. But like all things in life, their influence was not permanent and declined after the 6th century BC. But their colony at Carthage wasn't quite done yet. Think Hannibal and some elephants some several hundred years later. A little east, the Iranian Persians, led by Cyrus the Great, conquered the Medians and established the first Persian Empire in 549 BC. This was followed by their victory over Lydia, located in western Turkey in 546 BC. On a roll, they conquered the Chaldeans in 539. And with that, Aramaic became the official language of the Persian Empire, with its official religion becoming Zoroastrianism. Cyrus also put an end to the Assyro-Babylonian practice of deporting conquered peoples and trying to destroy all local nationalisms, a precursor to a similar Roman policy, and helping to explain people such as Herod. I also touched on this practice a few minutes ago with the Egyptians. At its greatest extent, the Persian Empire ruled the entire Middle East from present-day Greece to Egypt to Pakistan. It was only the Greeks that kept them out of Europe. You may remember the movie 300. It was based on one of the battles between the Greeks and the Persians. In 334 BC, Alexander of Macedon, aka Alexander the Great, invaded Anatolia in present-day Turkey, and nine years later, completed the conquest of the Persian realm. After his death in 323 BC, his empire is broken up into Macedonian successor states, and with that, the Seleucid kings of Syria and of Greek control ruled over most of Anatolia, Mesopotamia, and Iran. Around 250 BC, the Parthians established control over Iran, pushing the Seleucidians out. In the 2nd century BC, the Parthians expanded west into Mesopotamia, remaining there well past the year 1 BC. In fact, the edge of their empire was quite close to Bethlehem and Jerusalem at the birth of Christ. Some believe that the Magi were Parthians. The Parthians, too, will be covered in depth later. So you may be wondering what was going on within the Arabian Peninsula during these several millennia. There were frequent trading caravans between South Arabia and the Fertile Crescent beginning around the middle of the second millennium BC. Since the camel had been domesticated, it made desert travel easier and led to a prosperous society in South Arabia, especially around the city of Sheba, whose exact location has never really been established. But we do know from the Bible that Sheba had a queen. Several concurrent kingdoms arose in southern Arabia, but beyond Sheba, these had little influence on the biblical region, and while interesting, they are outside the scope of this podcast. Many of these kingdoms arose around 1000 BC, or a little later, and lasted past 1 BC. I purposely did not touch on when the Romans came on the scene. They did not besiege Jerusalem until 63 BC, well after the Old Testament was written. Obviously, their history will be a focus at some point in the future, just not today. And that is what I consider a quick overview of the history of the region pre-Christ. There will be more detail in the many episodes that follow, 
and almost every one of these societies mentioned will be covered in as much detail as necessary. So, that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll dive, or perhaps float, into the biblical flood story. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. The best place to find the podcast is probably on iTunes, but it is also available from many other sources. You can find links to these as well as other information on the podcast Facebook page, which itself can be found by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. In fact, you should visit the Facebook page and give it a like. Doing so will help others find it. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.